0: All right, before we jump in, one point of housekeeping. So we are not meeting next week. I'm out of state and away, and so um, uh, we will not meet next week. We will pick up again the week after, and the plan is for us to be done formally the last Wednesday in May. That's, That's the plan. We will not go past May. So with that, just remember, no next week. So I want to review. So last, last time together, we entered into the topic of what is sex? What is it for? What are the effects of sin and the gospel on sex? And you can see on the screen, I'm just going to review real quick, of this question, why did God gift sex? And you can see in parentheses there, exclusively to marriage. So first we saw the reason that God invented sex, not necessarily in order, is a God-given built-in desire and drive to marry. Secondly, he gifted sex to marriage as other-oriented service and encouragement. Third, he gifted sex as a private and exclusive physical display of the marital covenant union and oneness in marriage. Fourth, God-gifted sex for procreation and the fulfillment of the creation commission. Fifth, for mutual comfort, especially in sorrow. Sixth, mutual protection from sexual temptation and sin. And lastly, seventh, mutual delight, and satisfaction. So it's important just to review those super quickly to be reminded that sex is a pre-fall creational good gift and all of those seven items derived from Scripture combine to explain in many reasons why the gift of why sexuality exists and why the gift of sex in marriage exists and then you can see we'll begin to see that if the gift of sex is taken out of that marital union context and tried to be expressed in other ways that those seven things either cannot occur or they occur in twisted and perverted ways outside of god's ideal and plan and more So that's the blessings of sex and sexuality, and we ended uh, last time here on page 38 on the topic of sexuality and singleness. So this is not new to your notes this evening, these are from the notes last time, if you don't have them, they're over here on the overhead. So here's 1 Corinthians 7, and this is not very much to say on the gift of sexuality and singleness, But from 1 Corinthians 7, here's some select verses. Paul says, I wish that all were as I myself am. He was unmarried. But each has his own gift from God. So he recognizes that singleness and marriage are both gifts from God. Each has his own gift from God, one of one kind and one of another. To the unmarried and the widows, I say, that it's good for them to remain single as I am. Verse 9, But if they, that's widows and unmarried people, if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry. For it's better to marry than to burn with passion. The unmarried man is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to please the Lord. But the married man is anxious about worldly things, how to please his wife, and his interests are divided. And the unmarried or engaged woman is anxious about the things of the Lord, how to be holy in body and spirit. But the married woman is anxious about worldly things, how to please her husband. I say this for your own benefit, not to lay any restraint upon you but to promote good order and to secure your undivided devotion to the Lord. So in verse 7, Paul is not disparaging marriage by any means. He's the one who put Ephesians 5 in our Bibles under the inspiration of the Spirit. So Paul is the one who has spoken most eloquently, it can be argued, next to the Song of Solomon, on the purposes of marriage. So when he talks about uh, the the married man is anxious about worldly things, we typically think that the definition of worldliness is only sin. And in contrast to holiness, he's not making that, he's not using that term that way here, as if it is somehow sinful or less than holy for a husband to love his wife as Christ loved the church. Quite the contrary. So that'd be a a misinterpretation of what he's saying. What he's talking about is, talks about being undivided in your interest towards the Lord and your ability to serve him and not, or not serve the Lord, but having to serve others also. Paul refers to marriage and singleness as a gift from God. So if you are single right now, that is God's gift to you, and the same with the married person. In verses 8 and 9, he told us an unmarried person, a widow or a widower, that, quote, burns with passion should marry again in the case of the widow or widower this is not to say a person who has been gifted or chosen a life of singleness does not have sexual desires but for the person gifted with singleness they will likely likely have a measure of confidence and assurance from the lord they should not marry even so strong sexual desire is typically an indicator god intends one to marry So I don't have it here, we've looked at it in the past, but we could go to first, so speaking specifically of widows and young widows, uh, under the age of 60, Paul encourages them to remarry in 1 Timothy 5. He encourages them to, but doesn't command it. And then down in verses 33 to 34, we just see that a single person has undivided interests to serve and please the Lord in a way that a married person cannot. So celibacy means abstaining from sexuality and marriage. God requires celibacy from unmarried people since singleness is a gift from the Lord. So that's how this is fitting into this topic of, of, we're focusing on the broader topic of sexuality, but in the case of a single person, whether unmarried, widow or widower, because God has not, gifted a spouse to that person, or they don't desire a spouse, the um, the gift of sexuality is, is off-limits for a single person. So, we're going to move on, but any questions on sexuality in singleness? All right. I will tell I will tell you that in uh, personal experience, speaking to unmarried friends, personal experience, and then in my premarital counseling, one of this the strangest realities is that before you are married, uh, you are maybe even engaged to be married, but. Th- Any sexuality expressed in an unmarried relationship is still sin. And yet, the moment that the officiant declares, I now pronounce you husband and wife, you may kiss your bride. From that moment on, what became what was once sin now becomes a tremendous blessing from the Lord. And it's a very awkward and strange transition that once you're married especially when you're newly married to recognize that oh this is a really good gift from the lord not something that we have to exercise self-control and restrain ourselves from and you know going back to one of the reasons why i reviewed why god gifts singleness or rather why he gives sexuality is that first reason was that is it is a drive to pursue marriage and that's what we see here even in paul's teaching in first corinthians 7 is that burning with passion is often though not always a very strong indicator that the lord intends a person to marry so yeah diane yeah
1: When he says to the unmarried and the widows, I say that it's good for them to remain single as I am, it almost seems contradictory to Genesis when he says that it was not good for man to be alone.
0: As well as it almost seems contradictory to Ephesians 5 and that that, that exalted language that he uses. Uh, But this passage is a gift in that he's revealing that there are people who are celibate, or he refers to men who are eunuchs, uh, either by birth or by choice or by someone who made them. So they're unable to, they don't marry and they don't have children. So the Bible has a place for that. But those are outliers to the norm, the norm and standard expectation. So what Paul's doing is, when when we synthesize these, when we do good systematic theology, what at first seems like a contradiction is to say, okay, we see that the accent note on the Bible is that marriage will be the norm for most people. It's a creational good and a gift, and for the Christian, it exhibits gospel realities, and yet some people will be gifted with singleness. So I think that's what he's doing here. Is he's exalting that rather than saying if you're single, you're a second-class citizen, or if you're single, you're somehow less the image of God than someone else, or if you're single, uh, you're not able to obey the creation commission in its fullness, specifically with uh, being fruitful multiplying with children. And so we talked about in the past where on the one hand, God's the one who opens and closes the womb. And so it's a matter of the heart and uh, whether or not one has kids in a marriage context. But outside of that, with the family of Christ, people can use their singleness in many ways that disciple kids, like go upstairs and serve in Sunday school, things along those lines. But great, great question. Anything else before we move on to the delightful topic of sexual sin. All right, let's let's jump right into this. So, page thirty nine. Sexual sin. This is going to have two parts. The first part I'm going to move more quickly through, and this is talking about sexual sin generically. But then we're going to move into a hyper focus. On all things LGBTQ plus and that's been something that's been peppered along the way this all last semester and this current semester but we're gonna really focus on LGBTQ plus in a few moments because LGBTQ plus by definition defines themselves based on their sexual desires and expression so it's gonna fit here under sexual sin so Here's what's important. The Bible uses different language and pictures to describe sexual sin, but the chief term used is sexual immorality, and that is a junk drawer term for any sexual expression, any sexual engagement, any sexual desire outside the context of biblical marriage. Trying to make that the most comprehensive, watertight definition of sexual morality you can get. And if someone is able to figure out some way to somehow engage in some type of sexual expression outside of marriage and say that it's good, it's not. It's sexual morality. So as we think about sexual sin, if you zoom out, if you've ever spent time reading through um, Isaiah through Malachi, all the prophets, just take a moment to consider how sexual immorality or harlotry is is a chief definition by God to define Israel's sin, their rebellion and their covenant breaking against him. What this imagery does is it highlights how intimately serious sin is against God. And so it's as if God is, is through his inspired word, taking the most intimate thing between a man and a woman, the most powerful expression, and he's then relating that prophetically to what our sin is against him. So that magnifies how sinful sin is, but it also shows that there's an accent note in scripture that sexual sin is a uniquely devastating sin, which we have um, looked at in the past already it's devastating in sexual sins committed against us. It's, sec- it's devastating in sexual sins that we commit against others and more. So again, thinking about this definition of sexual morality, here in the Sermon on the Mount, a text we'll return to again later, Matthew 5, beginning of verse 27, Jesus says, You've heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery. But I say to you that everyone... "...who looks at a woman with lustful intent, has already committed adultery with her in his heart. If your right eye causes you to sin, tear it out, throw it away. For it's better that you lose one of your members than your whole body be thrown into hell. And if your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off and throw it away. For it is better that you lose one of your members than your whole body go into hell." So lust towards another person who is not one's spouse is sin. Note that the Greek term behind lust can be used positively as a good or negatively as a sin. The term simply means strong desire or yearning. So the context depends upon um, how you interpret it. So when Peter talks about how the angels from heaven long to look into God's gospel plan, it's the word lust, but it's used in a different way. So lust, like anger, is a matter of the heart that reveals the condition of the heart. And so Jesus is highlighting for us, yes, he talks about um, murder and anger, but it's interesting that here, after he talks about this looking lustfully upon another person, and by the way, while he's speaking to the guys about looking at a woman, this is this is an all-inclusive. If anyone looks lustfully on anyone, they've committed adultery in their hearts. Or for example, here's another take on the Bible's view of sin. Ephesians 5 3. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you, as is proper among the saints. And I like how the NIV how they render not even named, NIV renders it as not even a hint. So as believers, whether married or unmarried, the way that we conduct our relationships with the opposite sex is there not there should not even be a hint of sexual immorality. So just this comes to mind, uh, a number of years ago at another church I was at, a, there were four college students, uh, two couples, two guys and two girls, friends, serving in a parachurch ministry, doing evangelism, and then decided that it was a good idea, without telling anybody, to rent an apartment together. And they were each going to share, uh, a, one, one couple was in one room and one couple was in the other room, and they said, oh, we're not doing anything. I expected more than one snicker. To which the church said, yeah, right. And ultimately, they were put under discipline, uh, and they had, well, you know, we, we have a lease, and if we can't break the lease because it's too expensive, and they financially, under the cloak of financially binding themselves to their sins, they bound them, themselves into their sins, and uh, it, was, it was not the church disciplined them. They were excommunicated because they were unwilling to pluck out the right eye and cut off the right hand, or in this case, to do what was necessary financially to get out of their sin. And there was people in church saying, we've got an extra room, you can come live in our room while you're trying to get those things squared away, and more. But the reason I point that out is when it says not even a hint, this was one of the many things. There was no uh, clear proof that they were engaging in sexual immorality, but it was absolutely, absolutely the presentation of sexual morality. because husbands and wives move in with each other and live with each other, not boyfriends and girlfriends. One thing to think about in our day and age with sexual immorality and not even a hint is it's wrong for there to even be a hint of sexual morality among Christians. This includes how a person interacts and presents themselves on social media. Thinking about modesty and immodesty. Sexually enticing, sexually suggestive comments or pictures or poses or clothing and more. This would fall under the rubric of not even a hint of sexual morality among us. 1 Corinthians 6.18, yet another passage flee from sexual immorality, every other sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual immorality, but the sexual immoral person sins against his own body. I heard a college pastor once say that when it says flee sexual morality, it means that the Christian life comes with with Nikes, so that you can lace up your shoes and flee, and he so, given the spiritual and covenantal purposes of sexuality in marriage, sexuality outside of marriage, while redeemable, meaning the sins can be forgiven, sexuality outside of marriage is uniquely devastating and hurtful. That's at least what we can infer when he says every sin a person commits is outside the body, but sexual, the sexu- but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Contextually, the apostle is speaking to Christians who willfully engage in sexual immorality. The body is meant to be used to glorify the Lord, especially as his indwelling temple. The logic of this passage is that sexual immorality uniquely defiles God's temple, your body, since he indwells you as well as defiling you personally in ways that other sins do not. The deepest wounds, often centered around sex, guilt, shame, and hurt often linger in uniquely painful ways. And to glimpse ahead, in the gospel, only God in Christ, and by the Spirit alone, can bring beauty out of ashes, remove scars, and clothes us in white holy linens. God working all things for the good for those who love him, especially applies to sexual sin against us and or committed by us and where we're going to go with that at the end briefly what Jesus does in the gospel and that beautiful picture of giving us fine white linens means that the bride can still wear white in her marriage day despite her past because Jesus Christ redeems and his blood cleanses and he forgives and his righteousness is clo- clothes us, not just in glory, but when we are born again, we are we washed white in him. Nonetheless, what we are seeing is that for the believer, there are the strongest warnings in the Bible to exercise self-control and not engage in sexual immorality. And you can read this on your own. I just have some Proverbs in here Proverbs 6, Proverbs 7, that have warnings about the enticements that um, I'll read Proverbs 7. Well, no, it's too long. I'll read the end of Proverbs 7 here as an example of how unbelievers, or really any person, is capable of using their sexuality and prey upon other people's sexual desires to lure them in to sin. So Proverbs 7 ends, verse 22 and on, it says, All at once he, so this young, foolish man is enticed by a beautiful woman, and with much seductive speech, she, she captures him. And after 21 verses, it says, All at once he follows her. As an ox goes to the slaughter, or as a stag is caught fast, till an arrow pierces his liver. You see that? Just the, the stag, he is, his foot is in the trap, and the hunter is able just to draw that bow and just shoot him right in the liver. Bad shot, not in the lungs, but in the liver. <laughs> and the thing is, that poisons the meat, ruins the whole thing. Till an arrow pierces its liver, as a bird rushes into a snare, he does not know that it will cost him his life. And now, O sons, listen to me and be attentive to the words of my mouth. Let not your heart turn aside to her ways. Do not stray into her paths. Don't click the link. For many a victim has she laid low, and all her slain are a mighty throng. Her house is the way to Sheol, going down to the chambers of death. It's almost like that image is the young man entering into the home, and then as he moves into the door of the bedroom, that door is the gaping yawn of Sheol, walking right into hell. And he doesn't even know it. And I have been around long enough, and I know that many of you have been around longer than me and have more stories of both young men or young women who greatly, Christians who greatly desire to marry and compromise those standards of believing and obeying Jesus and finding a Christian spouse. Instead, the boy is cute, she is beautiful, charming and charming, and for whatever reason, choose to reject God's word, reject the counsel of fellow believers, and end up getting married, uh, binding themselves into covenant relationships with a person who's not a believer. And while this is speaking of sexual morality, this also is showing that portrait that disobeying God, entering into a relationship with an unbeliever that is in marriage, well, is only disobedience and has devastating consequences. Yes, there's stories where God saves the unbelieving spouse, praise the Lord, but God does not promise to bless what he has already condemned in his word. And so we um, can't self-deceive to think that we can disobey the Lord and then expect his blessings after we disobey him. So sexual sin, and, it's, and the reason I gave the anecdote is because it was sexual desire and even sexual sin that led into compromising and getting into those marriage relationships. So what we see in Proverbs, all through Proverbs, is that sexual sin is uniquely entangling and uniquely endangering to one's soul. It's a relational trap that can lead to hell. You read through Proverbs and you can note the dichotomy, the, the, the contrast between Lady Wisdom and Lady Folly. And Lady Folly is always depicted as using her sexuality to sin and seduce others. And interestingly, just side note, right? So the, the book of Proverbs has a narrative structure to it. So you have the first ten chapters of david having given wisdom to solomon solomon then gives that wisdom to his son and even the mom chimes in a couple times speaking to the son of which woman will you marry lady folly and will you be seduced by her sexuality or will you be a man of wisdom and marry lady wisdom and the narrative structure of proverbs ends in proverbs 31 exalting lady wisdom and she is an industrious woman and she has many children but she had many children in the context of marriage. And you notice who she's married to. She's married to a man who's an elder in the city gates. And so the narrative structure to Proverbs is that um, the boy chooses to listen to his parents, and he marries Lady Wisdom, and she's personified in the Proverbs 31 woman. So it's, it's actually a really cool portrait. But the point in that is that Lady Folly uses her sexuality to lead him into folly. And Lady Wisdom is restrained in her sexuality and there's a fruitful family that comes uh, in Proverbs 31. Richard, you need. I have a question going on which you were just explaining about um, getting married and and, uh, unequally yoked. What happens when uh, it's a young couple who are not believers at the time they get married? And later, one of them comes to the Lord and um, gives his life to the Lord, yet he's unequally yoked. How does that situation work out? I mean, I I know the one you were explaining is you're getting into it knowingly, but sometimes it's not knowingly when the marriage takes place. Absolutely, and if you build on that, if the bulk of human history largely revolved around arranged marriages, it is possible that unbelieving parents put their daughter into a situation, for example, such as that, or, or conversely. So Paul speaks to that exact question in 1 Corinthians 7, where he says that a believer should not seek divorce and live with their unbelieving spouse. Peter also speaks of it um, in 1 Peter chapter three, and that an, a believing spouse is to stay with the unbelieving spouse and to, um, to seek to win over and evangelize the unbelieving spouse. But if the unbelieving spouse abandons them, then they're free to remarry. Good question. I, I want to fast forward, uh, and you can read some of that material, there's just some scriptures with some commentary, some of them we've already looked over, and some of it is just building a case that I think that has already been established in scripture, but at the bottom of page 42, one thing I want to bring out, and this is a text we're going to see many times, is 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. This is this is a really, really important passage, so uh, top of 40, or bottom of 41 I'll just read it. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral. So if you think about the definition that we've already been has already been given, right? There's a constellation of terms that the Bible uses to describe different types of sexual sins. Sexually immoral is the umbrella or junk drawer term to mix the metaphor so notice here that paul begins by saying do you not know the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of god don't be deceived meaning there's going to be people who try to deceive that the following list of sins can still allow someone to enter into heaven even though they're not repented of don't be deceived neither the sexually immoral so that's every human being nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, two different terms there for both the active and passive act, that the ESV just combines into one thought, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. So it's that comprehensive list that he gives, and he's uniquely focused on sexual sins. And then here's what's amazing. Uh, now he's writing a letter, but you can almost picture him looking out over the congregation and then he says to them, and such were some of you. And this is something that we've looked at a number of times. Such were some of you. So sitting in the congregation were men who practiced homosexuality. There were men and women who were sexually immoral, idolaters, and and, and there were people who were married and cheated or committed adultery on their marriages sitting right there in the congregation. There were thieves, there were drunkards, uh, mockers, gossips, liars, such are some of you. But look at what Jesus did. You were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of of our God. So here's this beautiful language, Paul pastorally thinking through that these sins that we committed in our past, so that means that on any given Sunday, when we gather together, first and second service, when you look around the room, when you see hands going to the mouth to participate in the Lord's Supper, you are seeing beloved brothers and sisters in Christ who have been washed by Jesus' blood, sanctified and justified, who were once men who practiced homosexuality lesbians who practiced homosexuality, all manner of sexually immoral people, former adulterers and drunkards and more. What the gospel does is the gospel humbles us that we were all saved out of our own unique species of sins. We all share the common condition of being sinners, but all of us can gravitate towards different types of, of sins, many of them, many sins, but we see what Jesus does for us. So as we talk about sexual sin, whenever this, com- this topic comes up, all of us have a portfolio of regret in our past, maybe even in our present, and likely in our future. And what we see is that the gospel does is that when Jesus hung on that cross, he died for those past regrets, current regrets, and future regrets doesn't give us permission to sin, of course. But what we see with Paul's logic here is we must never forget that sexual sin is not the unpardonable sin. The unpardonable sin is blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, which is rejecting the Holy Spirit's gospel work in a person's life. The unpardonable sin is rejecting the gospel. That's what it is. So the sin list that Paul gives comprises the lifestyles to use a modern term, these church members came out of, and this is true of every church. So again, washed, the stain of Jesus' blood has stained over the stains of our sins, past, present, and future. Guilt and shame are washed away. All your sins, past, present, and future, atoned for and removed in Christ. We've been sanctified. We've been made holy and becoming more and more practically what we are positionally in jesus so positionally we are justified we're holy and we're becoming what we are positionally we're practically becoming more and more holy while sanctification is a process that has starts and stops and setbacks and seasons the grammar here views our sanctification from the vantage point of its promised completion you were sanctified which is amazing to think about And then he says justified. We are positionally declared not guilty in and because of Christ. The Father reckons us justified, never sinned, and justified, lived Christ's life. So what I want to point out then is that regret. If you hear these things and you're reminded of this barrage of texts about how uh, how uniquely... Uh, sexual sin is devastating and how uniquely God singles out sexual sins and calls us to repent of it. We also need the balm of the gospel, and so any regrets that we have must be placed at the foot of the cross and left there. We can lament our past sins, continually giving them to Christ, but regret can be a tool of Satan to drive us away from the cross and or functionally reject Jesus's all-encompassing forgiveness. It's like saying, Jesus forgives me for everything except for this thing I keep regretting over and over and over again. So if Jesus has forgiven us of those sins, then we walk in the forgiveness that he has given us. Just want to pause there. Any, any comments on just those litany of verses that we looked at that clearly show sexual sin is a big deal and yet the gospel is a bigger deal and rescues and redeems from sexual sin. Yes, Craig.
2: Before we get um, to the next section, you know, I was going back looking through this, and, and I go back to the beginning uh, where you define sexual immorality. And I guess you allude to it uh, in A, where it says harlotry is used by God to define Israel's sin, rebellion, and covenant breaking against him. So <clears throat> um, I guess I'm looking for um, a reference to unfaithfulness or betrayal. Because C- isn't that how God sees or uh, defines adultery? Whether it's false, uh, other gods, worshiping other gods, or making alliances with other nations.
0: So, absolutely. So on on a the parallel between the two. So yes, when it comes to Israel wanting to be like the Canaanites, or in the case of adultery and marriage it is it is all those things you just said it's betrayal it's it's fundamentally covenant breaking because you're taking the covenant sign in my opinion of marriage and then engaging in that with another person who's not your covenant spouse
2: yeah so if you had sex uh, or did not have sex but had a a close relationship you know outside the marriage could that be considered adultery
0: could could a um, could it be considered adultery where
2: well, you didn't cross a certain line but but for all intents and purposes you've you've been unfaithful in your heart to your wife or spouse
0: yeah that's a the I, I'm um, that pulls the string of the whole divorce remarriage conversation and then the grid that needs to be erected to, to, to figure out what can and cannot be. And so I'm, I'm my hesitation is I don't want to go down that road because that's going to commandeer the whole time. Yeah. That's a very good question. And the fundamental answer is that a spouse ought not to enter into any type of romantic relationship, intimate relationship with any person, not their spouse, f- fundamentally. And... Yes, Jesus says that if you look lustfully upon someone else, you've committed adultery in your heart. So certainly at a heart level, we could all agree that it would be adulterous. Mm-hmm. Um, when we get into then, can you actually file for divorce because of that? That's a whole separate, I, I don't want to go that way. Yeah. Not sure if that answers your question.
2: Well, I was just looking for the idea of unfaithfulness. And I guess I, when you say covenant breaking, I guess that covers that idea.
0: Yeah, fundamentally. I mean, But to, to
2: adultery is unfaithfulness, right?
0: Yes, Hundred percent. And what other uh, adjective we can come up with? Betrayal. I mean, there's just the the constellation of sins and relational breaches contained in that are m- enormous. Yeah, it's great. Yes, it's those things. Yeah, Diane.
1: On the topic of regret. Um, I struggle sometimes with sort of the balance between uh, just sort of like thinking too lightly of sin, um, but then on the other side, like just thinking about it too much and considering those regrets from the past, um, but then... I don't, But I, I, do, I don't know how to necessarily let those go without going to the point of, okay, yeah, it's fine, it's fine, it's fine.
0: Yeah, that's it. So the first thing that comes to mind, I'm going to butcher the, the illustration, but but Luther, Martin Luther, when he was a monk, his conscience was so sensitive. And so he, he has this remark that he makes, um, and I'm sure some of you can quote it better than me, but in, in effect that when when the Satan, when the Satan, Satan, which means accuser of the brethren, right? When he's, when the accuser comes and accuses you, that's often the uh, connection point with regret. And so Luther would say that you just turn to Satan and say, you're right, Satan, you're absolutely, everything you're saying is true and I can actually give you more ammunition against me in essence, but it's, it's, I'm clothed in Christ. I just totally butchered such a good quote from him. I apologize. Um, yeah, so, you know, there, there, is, there is a case to be made for on occasion rehearsing and remembering what we were prior to Christ and our own unique sins that required him to go to the cross for me. What I'm trying to highlight here is that there's some people with sensitive consciences, so that's kind of who I'm going after, who just nurse and rehearse over and over their sins. And what ends up happening is they drive away from the cross and can enter into types of works righteousness where they think, in essence, I know Jesus has forgiven me except for this thing, and there's things that I'm gonna do to earn forgiveness on this particular sin. And that's a common malady that Christians have. And so the point here is to recognize that if you find yourself racked with regret, that's a sign that you have to run back to the cross not away from it it's kind of the nuance i'm trying to go for there all right just yeah go ahead
3: Uh, back on the topic of uh, adultery and marriage if israel and i guess kind of by proxy us are considered adulterous wives to God for, for breaking in that covenant, if, or, and yet he is still faithful to us. Um, in order to mimic a Christ-like, you know, to mimic um, godliness, should we still remain faithful to our adulterous spouses?
0: Again, a divorce and remarriage question, okay. which Jesus speaks to. There's an exception clause in which he allows, in cases of adultery, for a Christian to pursue divorce. Um Malachi speaks of God hating divorce and divorce covers um, one's garment is the language which is weird sounding to our ears with violence and more. And we know that divorce was given because of the hardness of of our hearts, but there it's a freedom issue. and so people have very, very strong convictions on that on that issue. And so uh, I, I know of people who have, stayed in extremely difficult marriages where the other spouse was a serial adulterer and unbeliever against a believing spouse, and the believing spouse chose to stay in the marriage uh, for that, those purposes. But we have to be careful when we're talking about analogies that the Lord is giving us. So here's what the Lord does, but he also divorces Israel in Hosea. So, that's, again, pulling a big string. Don't want to go down that road too much. Good question. Okay, just, there could be many. I just want to point out two. Some common sexual sins, parentheses, in marriage. But this, just because you're, so anyone who's engaging in sexual sin, just want to point out two common ones. One is manipulation. Manipulation. And this would be thinking about the Proverbs 7 we just looked at, excuse me, of the woman who's enticing, in this case, the young man. But whether it's the husband or the wife, a common sexual sin is manipulation where sex is weaponized in the marriage where one of the spouses, usually the wife, though not always, either gives or withholds Uh, sexual expression to get what they want from the other person. So this brief point links what we saw last time in 1 Corinthians 7 about how the husband's body belongs to the wife and vice versa and that they're not to deny each other except for a time on agreement lest Satan tempts them and more. But a common sexual sin right here is giving or withholding sex to, to get what, rather than being other-oriented service, which we looked at, this would be self-centered service, either as a punishment to a spouse or different things. And the flip side to that would be another common sexual sin is tyranny, intimidation, or force. This is using fear or power against the will of the other. This is making the other person do what they don't want to do. Or going back to the 1 Corinthians 7 passage, this is making unyielding demands upon a spouse rather than considering the other spouse's needs and desires as well. So this, this would be, both of these are self-centered, self-seeking expressions of sin in marriage. Uh, let me just give two, two more in brief. And we will circle back if there's any questions. This whole idea, um, married in God's eyes, there is no such thing as married in God's eyes. And what I mean by this is, uh, especially in college days or, you know, early 20s, as people were still looking for spouses and whatnot, is that it was, um, in my limited experience, not uncommon for the guy to seduce manipulate and trick the girl into engaging in sexual practices because they were both christians and he said well i love you and you love me and so we're married in god's eyes so that the guy was satan (laughs) (laughs) so this would be a form actually i mean that's a form of spiritual abuse and spiritual manipulation right He, he might even use twist and pervert text, right? Satan uses the Bible to tell lies, and so he could even, you know, this guy could get crafty and sneaky. Uh, There's no such thing as common law marriage in eyes, marriage in God's eyes. It doesn't matter how long you've dated. What we see in the Bible, there's a pattern in the Bible. After the Garden of Eden, when, when God presided over the wedding of Adam and Eve, every marriage in the Bible since then involved witnesses, and one presiding over the ceremony in some fashion. Now, as cultures changed, the ceremony changes across the millennia of Scripture, but you have those ingredients. You have witnesses, you have one presiding over it, and you have the, the couple getting married. So there's no such thing as married in God's eyes. Cohabitating, kind of mentioned this already, living together before marriage to try things out is sinful defiance of God and all of his purposes of marriage. And it's just interesting the number of college students that I've spoken with, or young people in their 20s, so current, contemporary, right now, who's coming from a Christian home where they went to churches. Their families took them to churches, but the parents. Are concerned that they're getting engaged at the at nineteen twenty twenty one. Yes, that's young, and so the parents are saying, "Why don't you just live together first to see if things work out?" There's Christian parents giving that counsel, that is ungodly and sinful counsel. This again links back to the, one of the very first reasons why God gifts sexuality is it's a drive to get married, not to test drive, not to be a, uh, yeah, not to test drive whether marriage could work or not. And and so much can be said, but porn is nothing but uniquely dehumanizing and destructive sin. Um, just to exercise a lot of restraint, just to put one simple sentence there. There is an unbelievable amount of of um, research that goes into just the devastating effects, the enslaving effects of engaging in pornography. Uh, and more. And for so many going back to that proverb 7 about the enticing woman, it's it's scrolling on whatever social media source is your source of social media and seeing one provocative immodest photo that then just links and whether men or women can get go down that f- proverb 7 path of getting ensnared with pornography. So that was a that was an ultra fast, ultra fast, not extremely exhaustive discussion on sexual sin and then briefly sexual sin and marriage highlighting manipulation and tyranny, intimidation, and force. Any any questions on just sexual sins before we, we move on to LGBTQ plus? Jacob.
3: Um, along the lines of who? Oh, in the beginning when you said sexual immorality is a junk term for any sexual expression, engagement, or desire outside of the context of biblical marriage. My question is, I guess within reason, obviously there's ones that we can see very clearly. It's like, oh yeah, that's definitely crossing the line. But like, where should that line be drawn? I guess that's like a question that a lot of people have. Like, you know, even... Because there's some people who go as far to be, like, as, like, you know, no kissing before marriage or none of this, you know, is
0: this. That's <laughs> the next section. <laughs>
3: <laughs> but, uh, you know, like, uh, I guess that's my question, is, like, with, like it's particularly with things like sexual expression or desire, like, that can be a tricky one because, obviously, if you're going into the purposes of engaging and marrying someone, there's, Certainly a level of attraction, you know, which I know is different than lust. But, like, I guess where can the fine lines be drawn?
0: I think some wisdom principles would be that the, let's presume, so this couple, whether they're engaged or not, they're dating, they like each other. Their fundamental aim ought to be how holy can we be, then what can we get, how far can we go? And, I, and I'm not, like, that. You, you, that's a really good question you asked. It's very important. So don't hear me, like, trying to say oh, that was a bad question, Jacob. But that, that fundamental heart posture, and also, until the pastor says, um, I now pronounce you husband and wife, this might seem kind of strange, but one piece of wisdom would be recognizing that, in this case, this young lady that I'm dating very well may likely be someone else's spouse. She's certainly my sister in Christ. And if she's going to be someone else's spouse, like we're not going to end up together, then how would I want another guy who's dating my future wife right now? Treat her. What would I want him and her doing with each other? And so when you have that other-oriented perspective, when you think about that you don't want to lead this person dating into, into sin, And that they're going to have regrets or things that they're going to have to confess to their future spouse. So I think those parameters and more and a desire for for holiness and whatnot. Uh, What's also interesting is in Ephesians 5, when, in Ephesians 5, rather than me butchering it, there's there's a really good premarital idea in here when it talks about how, you know, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church. And gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, so that she might be holy without blemish. The premarital, or the dating component to that, is that Jesus sacrificed himself to make her holy So that, on wedding day, he could present her to himself. It was in his own best interest, as it were, to be holy, righteous, godly, and good. Which made her all the more holy, righteous, godly, and good. So that when they come together, it's a holy, righteous, godly, and good union. But when a couple is getting physical, not even physical, but having... Um, inappropriate, sexually enticing conversations. All those things that they're giving away. So I think those principles combine together to inform a couple that exercising self-control is what the Lord requires of them. And what's also the case is I know of, well, sadly, very few godly Christian couples who stayed pure through their engagement. I know far more who did not stay pure than stayed pure the last 22 years of my ministry. And one of the things that does is, as much as their desires are driving them, well, we're gonna get married in a week, we're gonna get married in two months, whatever whatever twist of logic happens, they disobey God together. One of them, or usually both of them, lead the other into sin and that has effects in their marriage. In this case, if he couldn't restrain himself, typically the case, but not always, is then when they get into marriage, they're already bringing baggage into that marriage. Her trust, his trust of her is broken and diminished by many degrees. So there's there's no good that I have seen that comes from asking how far can we go necessarily but how, But lots of good that comes from how holy can we be. And there's this whole huge pushback right now against Joshua Harris. I, I kiss dating goodbye and all those different things. And um, there's something to be said by making your first kiss, your kiss at the altar.
3: I guess, you know, part of the thing that's recently, like, I've thought about is, like, well, I actually agree with, I mean, all of that. Like, I think that, yeah, we should treat in a holy way and such. There's also that level to maintain things, you know, even like attraction or whatnot. Sometimes, you know, some level of intimacy, and I mean, maybe that's the weird word to use, but like, is required, you know, in a way where it's like, even just spending time together, it's like, you know, you wouldn't be like, right, you wouldn't be into some guy who's like, all right, I'm 15 feet away. <laughs> I'm like, you know, like, I think there's like, you know, there's a certain level of like, where it's like, oh. And I guess that's my question is like, well, I think some of that can be necessary, certainly, to like helping with a relationship, like where, how do I know that it's like, all right, how do I be safe with this while still also not like just making another person completely lose interest because I'm like, so overly cautious, you know?
0: Yeah, well, a few things there. So if if she loses interest in you because you're overly cautious, see you later she she was not godly enough i well i mean okay
1: <laughs>
0: now nah, that that's all right you can figure out what i'm trying to say there so 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 there there is a there's a, gray, there's a gray area there's a gray area there where every couple's going to have to exercise biblical wisdom uh, presuming all the scriptures we've looked at hand holding it may very well be that that hand-holding becomes a sexually enticing. It's, it's the gateway drug. It's a little tiny bit of weed, and all of a sudden you're doing lines of cocaine, right? It's a, gate, it's a gateway drug that you have to, that's where it's, it's better to know that that iron's hot, so I'm not gonna touch it, and if it requires me to stay back a few steps. So in my d- dating relationship with my wife, we, we, uh, we hugged, we held hands, um, but there were also some just benign things that were in our relationship as a couple that we decided, you know, we're not going to do this because this, this, is, this is moving my heart into directions. I am physiologically responding. This is, this is not good for me to engage in this. And so that would be for me to be aware of her and her to be aware of me and us to respect each other so that we are Making sure that we are not enticing or moving either person towards sin, so um, the there's th- that's where it's important to have conversations up front in the relationship to talk about what boundaries look like and why it's a little bit awkward because you're kind of getting to know each other, but it's about honoring Christ. So you triangulate all of those points, and there's a point of wisdom and conscience issues in there that would help. Answer that question. Very, that's a, a very important question. Really good, Olivia. Can I add to that? You can. Yes, you can.
4: Okay, I'll <laughs> like time me for a minute. So, okay, from my from my perspective and point of view, from that is just like each couple is different and each relationship is going to be different. So, I think it really just depends on like you and the girl. Um, ha, whatever that is for her, because she will have her own set of boundaries or she should have her own set of boundaries. and you should have your own set of boundaries before you get into that relationship and like seriously talk about it and set those boundaries and like make sure that they, that it sticks. And like I first I had my first boyfriend in high school, and we got counseled by some of the, like the leaders like in youth group, and they were like high school sweethearts, whatever. And they told us like, once you do something, you it's really hard to go back. Like once you kiss for the first time, it's really hard to go back. So you have to make sure you're like emotionally mature enough to be able to like be able to kiss that person, hold hands, whatever the case is. Because if you like realize, oh wait, that's too much for me. I can't handle that. Like it's really hard to go back for you and for the other person emotionally, um, and it's really tough. And that's. That's what I have to say.
0: It's great. Every part of yourself that you give away to someone who's not your spouse is something that you give away, yeah, and something you can't give to your spouse, yeah. All right. Oh yes. A yeah. Sorry. <laughs> sorry. Yeah. We're we're at, at our time limit, anyways. So, so I have a few things to say before we close.
1: Okay. Sorry. Um, I just wanted to add something as well. Um, to what Olivia was saying. <coughs> um, I think. You're right when you were talking about being a gateway drug. um, You can never count on your flesh, ever. Um, So like, if you know that you already have strong feelings for someone, and say you kiss or whatever, like that can instantly lead to something else because of your strong emotions. And I feel like it's just better to not even start something. because you're basically depending on, you're depending on yourself to not exceed your limit, rather than depending on God. Um, so, I just wanted to add that.
0: Yeah, the, the Song of Solomon ends with the Shulamite appealing to not awaken love before its time, and uh, sexual desire is a perfect example of awakening love before its time. There's, and that's confusing, the physical feelings which are involved in love, and then a biblical definition of love that is actually going to be other-oriented biblical sacrifice for somebody else. And so couples get into that position where they have awakened love before it's time a- and more.
2: I was curious if God made us that sensitive, like you're talking, physi- physiologically to such stimuli because it's meant to be that way in marriage
0: or something? Okay. Sure, yeah. And a drive towards marriage. Also, both those. Well, let me give you a few orientation pieces before I close this in prayer and then I'll stick around to talk if any of you have questions. So page 39. So a couple things. So I gave you a ton of notes, and one of the things I did was, as we get into um, talking about all things LGBTQ+, you're going to see some links in there of some long academic articles that I recommend, but I also know that you may not access them, or you may not choose to read them all, so I tried to cut out significant portions of those. So I would encourage you to read through the notes. Uh, You know, we're not meeting next week. We'll pick up again next time. Maybe reading through all the notes will kind of give you a a large picture as we go through and walk through these together. Um, Oh, page 43. Sorry, I said the wrong page. There's a few things. I, I put some resources there, so... You know, this This is the cultural moment that, we, that we're in, and that's one of the reasons why we're doing this class last semester and this semester. It's why it's called Imago Christi. What does it mean to be human? What does it mean to be gendered? What is marriage? What is sexuality? Because it's all of those fundamental things that are all being turned inside out, upside down, and redefined in our cultural moment. And our cultural moment is especially emphasizing the triumph of the sexual revolution, which is throwing off all biblical understanding and all biblical restraint regarding sex and sexuality. And that's kind of where we're going on page 43 with um, sexual sin and the LGBTQ plus movement. There are a ton of books, but I've given you here a, a handful that are worth your time that you could just waste your time on unhelpful books, these are helpful. You can read these. Uh, This one by uh, Kevin DeYoung, What Does the Bible Really Teach About Homosexuality? Very good, very helpful book. Another one that is fairly new, it's called Gender Ideology, What Do Christians Need to Know? And it's a very brief book that goes real deep on helping you understand the uh, arguments that you're gonna hear from people marching down the streets and more. Here's a book that just came out recently. It's, it's one of the four views, Understanding Transgender Identities, and it's going to show you four positions um, that we would say three are not biblical and one is, but are still poised as falling under the umbrella of people claiming to be Christians. They're just going to have progressive Christian, um, so here if you want to listen to argumentation and refutation understanding transgender identities, for views. One of the best books that you can spend time on are these two by the same author. This is Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self. And this is a newer, more recent condensed, but also updated version of this big one called Strange New World, how thinkers and activists redefined identity and sparked the sexual revolution. Both are by Carl Truman, this big one is a few years old it is academic it's heady and it takes a long time to read but it's worth it if you have the time this one the smaller one strange new world is uh, still a bit heady uh, but it's it's really worth your time and so I recommend these and then one that just recently came out is written by two unbelievers so it's a very interesting to get an unbelieving take and this is called Social Injustice. This is a smaller condensed version of a book called Cynical Theories. So Cynical Theories is the larger, more academic one. This is Social Injustice. This is the smaller, less academic one by Helen Pluckrose and James Lindsay. So if you have time and resources and you wanna go deeper than we're able to go in class, I, I recommend these ones and I kind of put them in order as I would recommend them to you there in the notes. So with that, you can read through these, and we'll pick up when we meet in two weeks to start going through, uh, going through this. Any, any questions for the whole group before I close this, and then stay to answer more questions? Lord, we once again thank you for the gift of salvation in Jesus Christ. We thank you for the gift of marriage, we thank you for the gift of singleness, we thank you for the gift of um, sexuality in marriage, and we thank you for your redeeming grace that comes to those who repent of their sins, their sexual sins, and comes to you, Lord Jesus, to receive your forgiveness, that only you can provide through your death on the cross for all of our sins, and your resurrection from the grave. And Lord, in this in this age, this moment that seems feels like seems like the pinnacle of a new tower of babel being built of sexual revolution and more and ever since the 60s being worked out now, we pray that your spirit would open the eyes of the lost as your church speaks your gospel, and you grant repentance, and cause many people to be saved alive and born again by your spirit, and that you would revive us, where your church is more godly and more concerned for personal holiness and piety, and the lost are saved in droves, and that the churches in this town would be faithful to declaring your gospel, standing firm in your truth, and that we'd have a problem of having enough space to fit all the new believers as they enter our churches. So Lord, we we pray that you would dismiss us with your blessing. Watch over us, Lord. Pray this in Christ's name, amen.